The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Lynette's Shrimp House, located in Highland Park. It's Metro Detroit's premier destination, serving juicy fried shrimp, fish, and wings, alongside soul food sides and new additions to the menu, like turkey tacos and desserts. Located at 13548 Woodward in Highland Park, just north of the Davidson, Lynette's is open for takeaway, noon to 8, Tuesday and Thursday, noon to 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday, and noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Call now, get some Lynette's. everybody. Welcome to the Craig Fawley Show on Deadline Detroit. Very glad to have you with me on this Wednesday. And of course, yesterday was primary election day here in the city of Detroit. And while the results may not be that shocking uh, to everybody, it is still worth talking about because we have a couple of very competitive races uh, that we're going to be looking at come November in the city of Detroit. But to talk a little bit more about it and to get some expertise here, I have my friend Eli Newman, who covers politics for WDET, Detroit Public Radio, joining me on the program for the first time. Eli, welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Craig. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to give everything away or tell people not to listen, but there weren't a whole lot of surprises in yesterday's election. Uh, I think the one thing that people were wondering if it was going to drive turnout, get people to the polls, was the fact that Proposal P was on the ballot. I mean, but this thing... I, I think it just confused people. It, it lost by a pretty overwhelming margin, two thirds to one third. Uh, I thought it was going to be closer than that. Um, but it certainly seems as if there was a full throated effort to get people to vote against proposal P it was shocking to see how much money went into that compared to every other race. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and also to be clear, we're still trying to figure out how much money actually went into this thing. There's um, there's a whole bunch of billboards that I'm sure anybody who's been around the city driving around says Proposal P is a problem. Um, there's television ads, YouTube ads, Google. I mean, the whole it runs the whole gamut. And not all of this stuff is super clear about like who's funding it or how much it is being funded. So it kind of takes some extra effort to figure out what's going on there. But l- like you were saying, you know, a revised charter, we're talking about a 150 page document. Very, very, very dense. It's not necessarily clear, you know, uh, for the common person or the the common voter to figure out what is actually in this thing. Now, uh, overall, the the proposal would have expanded uh, Detroit city government pre- by a, a fairly wide margin, bringing a lot of new uh, elected positions, appointed positions, and a lot of new uh, jobs and responsibilities. Uh, members of the uh, Detroit Charter Revision Commission say that it recentered, you know, the the government around a lot of social issues. You know, we've seen that there would have been a department about. Um, um, uh, for environmental justice, uh, a task force on reparations. A, a lot of uh, pretty marquee uh, progressive items were on this bill. But at the same time, you did have pretty mainstream politicians coming out uh, pretty vehemently against it, including uh, Mayor Mike Duggan, who um, uh, would, said that the, the new charter would have brought about, around a, a new bankruptcy. You had Governor Gretchen Wimmer, who actually rejected the charter when it was brought to the table. So there was a lot of things that were actually, you know, moving against this thing as, as it was going towards voters. Well, you know, I mean, for me, I interviewed people both for and against Proposal P on the program. I even read the report that the Citizens Research uh, Committee put out, um, CRC of Michigan, put out this like 20 page 
descriptor of what was in there. And I frankly was still confused as to exactly how it would work and what this stuff would mean. And CRC couldn't even really figure it out in certain instances. Anytime you put something that dense uh, and that difficult in front of voters, it seems the normal inclination is to vote against it, even though there were a lot of things that everybody in the city is suggesting we need water affordability, right? Uh, property tax relief in some capacity. There were a lot of goodies in there for citizens, but they still weren't willing to pull the trigger. Yeah. You know, I, I think what it comes down to is the fact that some of these things were being enshrined in the charter itself ra- rather than statutory language, ordinance languages, which is where I think a lot of uh, those that may have opposed the actual charter process and not necessarily opposing some of those social justice uh, components of the charter. It was more about the uh, added bureaucracy that would have been added to it. But it, it is remarkable because, you know, the city hasn't um, had too many opportunities to completely revise its charter. I believe that there was three other opportunities in the, in the course of its history. And each of those revisions did uh, pass, you know, proposals generally tend to pass. Um, sure. Um, just like millages do. Um, so, so the, the, um, the fact that it didn't, I think, really kind of spoke towards this really vigorous campaign against it. And really, there was a significant lack of funding, um, again, by the Detroit Charter Revision Commission, which, again, is this you know, elected uh, group of people that were, had been meeting over the last three years trying to draft this whole language. They had a lot of their funding um, um, cut as a result of the pandemic. And so that their ability to actually campaign about it themselves uh, they they were uh, yeah not able to really uh, do do so and not be as vigorous as they would have liked to be. Well, Eli, and, and, and you know, I I don't want to put you in a position where you're you know making guesses here, but you know the commission was they had problems from the start. Uh, you know, nothing about this process was smooth for them, and and the final result that they put out there. And, you know, of course they had to go to the courts to even get it on the ballot in the first place. Uh, the Supreme court didn't even say, okay, until like a week ago. Um, it, it seemed it was sort of haphazard. Uh, I hate to say that I'm, I can say that I'm not going to put you in that position, but it seemed like the finished product wasn't quite fully baked. Yeah, no, I think there was definitely those issues. Of course, like those initial um, media reports that we saw at the very beginning um, of these kind of hectic meetings that were were going on. But we have to remember that this mean that this commission was meeting for years, so there there was a a pretty big gap of coverage, I would say. And I remember heading into. Uh, uh, 2020, thinking that uh, I would be doing a little bit more charter revision uh, uh, commission uh, coverage, but um, of course that year had a little uh, had other plans uh, for all of us, so um, I w- wasn't really able to get to it. But I, but I, but you are speaking to towards certain issues that that did present themselves. Again, the attorney general's office, the state attorney general's office, Dana Nessel, um, pointed to a, a number of legal deficiencies. There was some confusion on the board about what version of the charter was actually going forward to um, uh, to voters. Eventually, it became the one um, that uh, didn't have some of those re- revisions that uh, came after the, the attorney general's uh, opinion. So there, there were definitely some administrative issues. But, but again, I, I, th- I think what's important to take away from that whole um, uh, uh, that, that the meetings was that there was a number of, um, of really engaged citizens that were uh, giving their two cents about what they want to see in city government. And uh, 
wanting to really enshrine these things, you know, whether it might might be the disability community, whether it might be about reparations, water affordability, um, over over assessments on property taxes. Those are these these issues that have long lingered um, um, by grassroots activists, by progressive activists, by a number of of, of, of residents that have been affected by these issues. And so I, I think they were really trying to put it in uh, into you know law into into the actual fabric of the so-called constitution of the of uh, of the city and the question becomes is now as we're looking ahead towards the, you know these new elected officials how are they going to be able to kind of carry off that momentum and and maybe uh, act, come up with statutory language ordinances other ways of of going about some of these issues well and I sort of wanted to get to that I mean uh, because a lot of the people that I talked to about this said look I love so many of the things they're talking about here, I just am not sure it belongs in you know the city's governing document. Uh, this is not the place for it, but there is obviously room for council to enact some of these things and to work with the mayor's office to see if they can't address some of these issues. Do you think they actually had some success at bringing some of these issues to the fore in the city and getting people to think about them differently? Uh, or is this you know margin of, of loss here enough for politicians to sweep this stuff under the rug going forward? I think it's a little too early to say at the moment right now, you know, we're in the middle of city council really be in, being in flux. I think it's, it's safe to say that Mayor Mike Duggan has all but secured a third term, uh, although, you know, we do have uh, challenger Anthony Adams kind of in the wings. Um, we're going to see what happens there. But he did win by a very uh, uh, large margin. That being said, this last year has really presented a uh, a, sh- a shift in terms of what is feasible, what what is politically feasible. Uh, we're having reparations, for instance, Mary, uh, ca- uh, council member, Mary Sheffield, uh, council, sorry, council uh, president pro tem, Mary Sheffield has a, um, a reparations resolution that is likely to appear on the November ballot. Um, that would uh, basically gauge whether or not citizens are interested in having a reparations committee, but th- that's something that would have been a part of proposal piece. So we are actually seeing some traction on some of these issues, but again, these have been things that have long lingered in city government. And I think that is why people took to the charter to actually make something happen because they weren't getting um, that response from their elected officials. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what legacy of this is because, uh, you know, you have a lot of people thinking now, uh, I think a little bit differently uh, on some of the issues that they've been dealing with in the city. Uh, All right. You mentioned Mike Duggan. Um, Those numbers were ridiculous. I'm sorry. Uh, You know, an incumbent, always has an advantage, but he took 75% of the vote. Anthony Adams came in second. Now it's a two person race, obviously, but he only, he only garnered 10% of the vote. Uh, it's Mike Duggins to lose, obviously. Uh, and, and he's got a huge campaign war chest and I don't, I don't see how, you know, I don't see how he does not win a third term unless something scandalous breaks. And so far he has been uh, immune to any of that sort of stuff. Right. And, and I think, yeah, I, I think it's hard to say of, uh, of what what would really uh, cause a dent in, in his campaign. I think uh, uh, Mayor Duggan has been very successful in, in garnering a lot of support from really every corner of, of the city. I think um, uh, there's there's been a lot of, of um, uh, there's been a, a, a lot of focus on on what his response to the pandemic. Which you know where we we've seen like the TCF center be converted to uh, a vaccination site. 
I mean, I remember the very early days of the pandemic of, of, of just the general response, I think of testing facilities. There's been, I think, a noticeable difference in, in how Detroit has grown under the last eight years. Um, and I believe that's something that's really appealing to Detroiters. Now, why why 75 percent? I think that you could, you could make an argument that, you know, voter turnout ha- has been pretty low for, you know, non-presidential elections. I think we, we're sitting at around about 13 yeah, percent yeah. numbers. But, you know, we're, we're not seeing this robust response to 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 any of these um, candidates. Um, and I think for a lot of people, uh, they see Mayor Mike Duggan and uh, maybe they don't necessarily agree with all of the practices, but it, they don't see it necessarily being broken enough to necessarily push it one way or the other. Well, I- interestingly enough, Eli, I mean, you know, you did see some of the people running against Mayor Duggan talking about, you know, having a real Detroiter in charge of Detroit. I mean, that's a lot of coded language that's been out there. But, you know, in his first campaign, that didn't work. Second campaign when Coleman Young ran against him, it didn't work. Uh, you had Tom Barrow doing the same thing. He's of course finished in, in a distant fourth. Uh, and even Anthony Adams was sort of hinting at it a little bit in his campaign, but it, it doesn't seem to stick. And it's like residents, I'm not sure they care about that anymore. As long as they're getting the results that they want when it comes to services, it comes down to that issue. Uh, and while nothing's perfect in the city of Detroit, clearly there's obviously a lot of problems in the city. <sighs> You know, it's it's tough to to hit them with that. I don't think voters care about that anymore. Yeah, and exactly in terms of anything that might have to do about about race, I don't necessarily that's necessarily sticking in terms of a of a, a political wedge towards his campaign. Um, I, I I would say that um, th- this issue of him, you know. Uh, of whether or not he's able to actually address some of these like long systemic issues that we are seeing um, already being uh, spoken by the Anthony Adams campaign uh, again about water affordability, about um, housing security. I mean, flooding has been uh, uh, a, a, because it's, it's a seasonal issue, but now it's happening during the election season. That's coming up a lot in the campaign. So seeing the the, the mayor's response to some of, of those things, um, that's going to really, I think, you know, drive the election one way or the other. But the 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 one of the other important things uh, that I've noticed just from talking to Detroiters and and uh, what people really vote on, I I think it's fair to say that a lot of the electorate is conservative in the sense that uh, fiscal management is a is a key priority for them. And I do think that um, for for some Detroiters, they are seeing uh, the uh, 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 Mayor Mike Duggan being a, a, a capable administrator. And I think that speaks volumes for a lot of people in the way that they vote. And maybe some of those uh, those wedge issues that we are talking about aren't as salient in the, the mainstream thought. I should remind folks, my guest is Eli Newman. He, of course, covers politics for WDET, Detroit Public Radio, my old stomping grounds. I always like to talk to folks from WDET. Uh, Let's move to council here for a couple of seconds, because there are a couple of really intriguing races that are shaping up for the fall. District 4 is going to be fun to watch, and the at-large race, I think, are the two that are going to be pretty tight. Um, I was surprised uh, to see... Coleman Young do as well as he did uh, in that race. He was one of the top two finishers for that at-large position, losing by only a couple hundred votes, if I'm not mistaken, to Janae Ayers, who, of course, has been on council for quite a while now. Uh, That's going to be fun to watch to see who emerges there. And and Coleman Young, 
like I said, I've done some work with him at Deadline Detroit, so I just have to put that out there. Um, and I know him pretty pretty well at this point. But you know, I, I, when I watched him in the legislature, you know, he's always you know getting attention for us, some of his funny quips and things that he said. But he was a pretty hard worker when he was in Lansing. You know, uh, whether you you know he got the results he wanted, he was at least a tireless advocate for the people in the community. I I think you know he's sort of growing into that role, and he he might do well on council. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to to his position um, on Lansing. I, I my coverage of that is kind of uh, I, I don't. Do, I'm, I'm much I, older than you are. I understand. Yeah, don't worry about of it. Of course. Uh, that being said, I do I do think Coleman Young has has uh, proven to be a, a um, someone that people for, well, first of all, he's a familiar name. Right. Sure. Uh, with a name like Coleman Young, obviously that has strong resonance in the city uh, and that kind of pedigree. Um, uh, but but I do I, I, I would concur that I think we have seen him get out in front of issues that are, um, you know, important to Detroiters, those things that, that we, we've been talking about these last few minutes. Um, and I think those are things that um, uh, that they could really propel him. Uh, to the forefront, of course. Uh, I, I think generally observing this just election, whether it be uh, uh, Council Member Janae Ayers, whether it be City Clerk Janice Winfrey, whether it be Mayor Mike Duggan, incumbents, names that are familiar, those tend to stand ahead of the path. And those are the names that I think we're really seeing kind of have these really monumental gains over, um, you know, uh, names that are maybe less familiar to uh, the common voter. Now, in the city council at large race, we, we do have, you know, a couple of people that are moving forward. We do have um, uh, Nicole Small, who is, uh, again, part of that uh, Detroit Charter Revision Commission mm-hmm. um, and, uh, again, is one of those uh, candidates that has postured herself um, in opposition to the way that things have been going under the, the Duggan administration. So it will be interesting to see if if some if any of that messaging does um, uh, uh, work going forward. And of course, like you were saying with district four, I mean, that, that, that's an in, in incredibly interesting race, especially uh, considering what's going on with current council member, Andre Spivey, um, who, uh, recently had, had been indicted for, um, federal, uh, corruption charges. Um, uh, there's been, uh, allegations that he has, um, that took, uh, that he took $35,000, um, in bribes, but, uh, over the last four or five years or so. Um, so, you know, th- th- how those issues, the issues of, of good governance, of corruption, how that actually uh, manifests within um, city government and how people vote. I mean, I think that remains to be seen. But of course, we have a whole new crop of people um, since he is not seeking re-election um, coming out um, in, in that race. Well, you know, of course, uh, M.L. Elric, a longtime uh, free press reporter, Fox 2 reporter, uh, came in second place there to Letitia Johnson, um, who, uh, you know, and like I said, these vote totals are so small at this point. And we had 13 percent, I think, of the population that showed up to vote in this thing. So we're only talking about twenty six hundred and twenty eight votes to 2015 for M.L. Elric. Like I said, when the fall comes around, there's going to be a lot more people showing up. You know, he may be able to close that gap just with the name recognition thing alone. Uh, but I also saw in that district with the number of candidates they had running, I, I spent a lot of time in D4 just to check it out. All the candidates were busting their butts over there for that open seat. And it was good to see um, that they actually had some decent choices in that district. Yeah, no, I, I think that that remains to be one of the more competitive districts. Um yeah. Um, um, in this upcoming election, and also is maybe the the one 
exception that proves this rule of name recognition. I mean, ML Elric is a name familiar with anybody who's watched television, who, who picks up a newspaper, was familiar with the, uh, the Kwame Kilpatrick investigation, all of that stuff. And but we also did have Virgil Smith in that race as well, who is, uh, you know, a longtime judge. Um, um, politician, uh, a name that is also familiar to voters. And so to see Letitia Johnson really come out ahead in that race, I, I think uh, speaks towards her her campaigning. Um, she, she's somebody who has been involved in multiple uh, different community groups on the east side. Um, I believe she was also part of the uh, Board of Zoning Appeals. So th- yeah. she has a lot of government experience and that must be resonating um, uh, for for the voters there. But of course, we'll see what happens to all of, you know, that was a very crowded field. Um, a, a number of candidates did not uh, move forward. So to, see, so to see where all of those votes uh, end up in the November election, I think it remains to be seen, but it will definitely be something to watch out for. Well, just a quick note for anybody in District 4. Uh, I interviewed both ML Elric and Letitia Johnson uh, months ago. Uh, I'm going to repost those. So you can go back and listen if you're trying to figure out where you want to go in November. I will repost all those so you can watch them both. Uh, but, you know, again, she reached out to me right away. She's like, I want to be on. I want to talk to people. Uh, and, you know, it's a good interview. So I think they've got two decent choices in District 4, which is nice to see. Um, I, I was a little surprised, though, at the lack of – I mean, that district was busy. And let's just sort of focus, though, on the city as a whole here. It, primaries are always, you know, low voter turnout. But, I mean, it just seems that there was just no real energy around any of these issues, with the exception of Proposal P this time around. It's just like it's almost as if it happened and people are like, wait, there was an election yesterday? Yeah, I mean, that was something that I even heard from uh, city clerk candidates is that as they've been campaigning, the idea that there was an August 3rd primary coming up was lost on a lot of the people that they spoke to. Um, I, I, but I do think it's important to, to recognize that we are coming out of the pandemic or really we're coming into another phase of the pandemic. Yeah. And I think that's really shifted the way that people campaign, that the way how people's habits are in terms of getting out to the polls. Um, I, I believe we've seen uh, tw- like uh for every one person who came out to the to the precincts, I think we saw two people vote absentee ballot, which is, of course, is like this new kind of phenomenon that's happening in Michigan um, uh, w- with our new voting laws in place. So I, I, I think that there is this shift in, in, in how people are voting that is happening. And of course, we're upon this backdrop of the pandemic, the fact that it's a city citywide primary, of course, we're not having state, you know, there's not a state office um, or, or a presidential race that people are, are, are voting for. So it's really hard to, I think, energize people to actually get out and vote. And it's really hard to, uh, frankly, energize candidates to go and find, you know, um, voters where they are because all of, of all of those health concerns that, uh, that, that I think people are still experiencing with and, uh, and, and dealing with. And there's a lot of fatigue, I would say, also coming out of the last election that happened last sure. year in November. I mean, it, it was, that was an incredibly, I think, taxing. Well, um, and we're still talking about it every we're day. Still, we're still talking about it. I, I mean, the, the idea, I mean, of course, that was a presidential race and, you know, it's saw international attention. Um, with protests about vote rigging and um, and election fraud, all of which I should say are unfounded and ha- has not been by supported by um, by, by really anybody. Um, oh, no, trust me, my audience understands this yeah, I'm fact sure. very well. So I, I'm sure, but you know, it, it bears. <laughs> you don't have to couch your language here. <laughs> it, it bears repeating sometimes. Okay. Um, but but in any situation, we were coming out of a, of a really fraught election, and I think. 
Um, on, on one hand, I, I think it's emboldened a lot of people to really uh, make sure that their democracy is functioning, which is why in some of my coverage, I've, I've really been focused on the city clerk's race, given that they are uh, the gatekeeper to uh, local democracy, so to speak. Um, but th- I, I, I think, again, it's just, it's just challenging just to to kind of re- re-engage with the world at this time. And I think we're kind of seeing a little bit of, of that right now. And frankly, I, I, I think what we're also seeing is that most of the electorate is, is okay with the status quo. But yeah. we, we are going to see what happens with some of these, these races where, well, I, yeah. It's going to heat up. It's going to heat up after Labor Day, after kids are back in school, and once we figure out what the heck we're doing in that regard. I mean, that's... I think October we might start seeing some people really focusing on this um, and and we may actually get some advertising, but boy, looking at some of those numbers for incumbents, you know, yeah. why open up the war chest if you don't need to, <laughs> it's, right. like, it's going to be an interesting race for sure. But I, like I said, D4 is going to be fun to watch. And uh, of course the at large for council are the two that, that I think are going to be pretty remarkable. And here's the one thing we do know, Eli, is that Detroit city government elected officials are going to look a lot different in the fall than they do right now, especially on council. So we got that to look forward to. Absolutely. And and I know I'll be uh, figuring out what's going on in the the months and years to to come. Absolutely. Eli Newman, we appreciate you being with us. Uh, We love your work on WDET. Thank you so much for being with us today. And um, hey, we'll talk again before this election happens. How about that? Absolutely. I appreciate it, Craig. Thank you so much. All right. And this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Looking for the latest news and information about our great city of Detroit? Head to DeadlineDetroit.com for one-stop shopping for the most important stories of the day. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in town, providing original reporting, videos, and podcasts that keep you in the know about everything happening in Detroit. Become a member today, and you'll automatically be entered into a drawing for prizes, including gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Go to DeadlineDetroit.com slash membership.